Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Damon Fairless. Five years ago today, Canada legalized weed. Cannabis had been criminalized since 1923 under Mackenzie King's liberal government. Ninety-five years later, the first legal recreational marijuana was sold at midnight in St. John's, Newfoundland, after a New Year's Eve-like countdown. Coast to coast, the mood was jubilant. I feel great. I know, it's like my hands tonight. It's a big moment for a stoner like me. Like, it's, a, it's like Christmas and New Year's and all in one day. Get even. I went for one of everything. <laughs> Literally, I got one of everything. So I'm pretty excited about it. I'm hoping to get maybe, I don't know, 15 grams of some Snoop Dogg-approved kush or something. But the high didn't last. On legalization day, there were supply issues across the country, and the reviews of what legalization looked like in practice were mixed. I don't believe Canada's ready. Now that I can purchase it legally, my money will go to the government instead of going somewhere else. It was really expensive, and it's really unorganized in there. Um, It's not going to meet the needs of British Columbians, and it's going to keep the black market driving. And the comedowns continued. The hopes and expectations for a thriving cannabis industry in the country mostly fell short. The town's largest employer, Canopy Growth, announced it would lay off 800 workers on Thursday. Canopy Growth says the decision to scale down operations here is essential to the future of the company, saying the Canadian cannabis market had not materialized like they had hoped. Today, Solomon Israel's back on the show. He covers the cannabis industry for MJ Biz Daily. We're going to look back on five years of legalization, what it accomplished, what challenges it's come up against, and where it goes from here. Hey, Solomon, thanks again for coming on Front Hey, my pleasure, Damon. So five years after legalization, how have Canadians' cannabis consumption habits changed? I think one of the themes of our conversation today that we're going to keep coming back to is we don't know for sure, but according to Statistics Canada, uh, some figures published in a recent government report that's part of this review of cannabis legalization, the rate of cannabis use in 2021 uh, amounts to about 22% of Canadians aged 15 or older. And to be clear, when I say the rate of cannabis use there, we're talking about past year use. So if you smoked weed just once in the year, you fit into that category. Okay. That takes us to about 6.9 million Canadians who smoked weed in a 12-month period uh, in 2021. And that's up since 2017, 2017 being a year before legalization. That's definitely increasing over then. But the, the kind of complicating factor here is that the trend in cannabis use was rising ahead of legalization already in October 2018, and it continued rising after. Right. So there's this question of, to what degree was legalization the cause? 
of the increase or you know how much would the trend have increased even if if legalization hadn't happened and we know that people are more likely to be open about admitting to using cannabis uh as it became less stigmatized and particularly you know as it as it became legal um so that you know kind of increasingly open attitude to just admitting cannabis use could also play into the survey results which isn't to say that the stigma is not still there Okay. Yeah. So, so what you're saying, if I'm understanding is that as the legalization makes people more comfortable, people who are more comfortable are more likely to admit they're using it. So there's a bit of a potential effect. So, so cannabis for medical purposes was already legal prior to the cannabis act coming into effect in uh, 2018. But how did the, how did the legislation expand that? Yeah. So as you said, legalization of, of medical cannabis had been around for a while in Canada around the turn of the millennium. So there were several different iterations of these medical marijuana regulations, but we eventually got to this point um, ahead of recreational legalization. We were at this place where multiple private sector companies were allowed to produce cannabis. They sold it to people uh, directly. People had to have you have to have a doctor's uh, or a nurse practitioner's authorization to get it. And that did pave the way for recreational legalization. Uh, because it created, first of all, it created a government apparatus around regulating uh, commercial uh, cannabis production and also personal medical marijuana production. Uh, and it also uh, created this small but growing constellation uh, of companies that already existed uh, growing medical cannabis and selling it to people. And then those companies could go to investors and say, hey, look, you know, we already know how to do this. We're already doing this. We already have medical clients buying from us in Canada. And if you invest in us, uh, then we can, you know, take your money and apply our expertise to growing weed for the recreational market. It sounds like it kind of created the initial foundation or infrastructure that was built on, but then the law comes into effect. Before we get into that, t tell me what the goals of legalizing cannabis in Canada were beyond, you know, the medical purposes. Yeah. So the, the goals uh, are, they're quite explicit in the legislation itself. Uh, and I, I would put them into kind of two main connected categories. There are public health goals, um, and then there are kind of uh, like criminal justice and control goals. So, okay. you know, the, the biggest objective of the law, uh, and we heard the liberals talking about this a lot, was to protect young people by keeping them from getting access to cannabis uh, and also from from what they would call inducements to use cannabis. So like advertisements or promotions or something like that. As we're approaching it purely from a public health and safety standpoint. Uh, you know, all the question of, of revenue and taxation um, is secondary to the fact that we want to make sure we're keeping our communities safe and uh, not hurting Canadians. We are committed to legalization, uh, restricting access, and strictly regulating marijuana to achieve the ultimate objective of keeping it out of the hands of kids and the proceeds out of the hands of criminals. As my friend across the way... And then how do we do that? Well, we do that by providing for uh, the, a legal system to produce cannabis. That, therefore, the concept was that will reduce illegal cannabis production. Uh, we will also, you know, put some new criminal laws on the books um, to further de deter illegal cannabis production and illegal cannabis sales. And then, you know, a bit lower down in the kind of list of priorities here, um, we're putting less of a burden on the criminal justice system as it relates to this drug. Um, you know, for people who do use cannabis, we're giving them access to a, a regulated and, and, you know, high quality source of cannabis. Let's talk about how effective this legislation was, though, in terms of these two things you've talked about, the, the legal issues and the, the public health issues. So first of all, I guess let's go into the, the goal of reducing the amount of uh, resources spent on the criminal justice system. How's the legislation panned out as far as that's concerned? Yeah, I, so I don't have any actual data that speaks to spending. 
Um, we do, however, have data that really uh, looks at police reported mm -hmm. cannabis crimes. Um, and that suggests that indeed, you know, the rate of cannabis criminalization among adults did decrease as a result of legalization. They didn't find any association either between legalization and, and property crime or violent crime. Okay, so let's turn to the public health goals. I remember in the early days of legalization talks, there were a lot of fears that kids would get their hands on things like gummies or weed-infused chocolates. So how's that panned out? Yeah, uh, important to note, I think, that the, the government was very, very sensitive um, to this question around you know, the safety of edibles. Um, so much so that they didn't even include legalization of commercially produced edibles uh, in the first wave of legalization in, in late 2018. There was the second wave of legalization uh, in the cannabis industry. They called this Cannabis 2.0, uh, where these new government regulations came out. The government took a bit more time to develop them. Edible cannabis products will carry a maximum of 10 milligrams of THC per package. As well, edibles are not allowed to contain sugar or come in shapes, colors, or flavors that appeal to children. So unless companies... You know, the question is, did this result in, in more cannabis poisonings for kids? Right. Um, and the evidence on that is limited. There was one good study... Uh, it did look at unintentional cannabis poisonings of children um, and they, uh, between 2015, so well ahead of legalization, and then 2021. And this study did find, uh, and I'm just quoting here, quote, large increases in hospitalizations for unintentional cannabis poisonings among children following legalization of recreational cannabis use by adults, end quote. The, the complicating factor here is that, A, um, the study didn't tell us. We don't know whether the cannabis edibles involved in these poisonings came from legal or illegal sources. Mm -hmm. And that matters for two reasons. A, because the legal stuff, uh, it must come in childproof packaging. And B, because the legal stuff, uh, it, ha it has a, a hard limit on how much THC it can have right. per package. Yeah. And that limit was instituted, I mean, I think in part to maybe to protect adults from, from taking too much, but I think especially to protect children. So <laughs> there's this limit. A package of cannabis edibles can only have 10 milligrams of THC. So, you know, even if a kid does get into that, I mean, that wouldn't certainly wouldn't be good. Yeah. Uh, but, it, you know, it hopefully would reduce the amount of harm. Another factor in this study uh, was that the launch of legal edibles overlapped with COVID-19 right. uh, to a certain degree in 2020. And, and there was some other research suggesting that there were just more pediatric emergency room visits for child poisoning overall during the pandemic, presumably because kids were just at home more. Right. Um, and so, yeah, one of those situations where we could could kind of use some more information on this, but there is some indication that possibly, uh, you know, cannabis poisonings did increase after edibles came out. Okay, so let, let's move on then from the concerns about the you know the legal impact of legalization, the uh, public health impact of legalization, and talk about what's really your kind of area of expertise too, which is uh, the business of it. So the last time you were on the show, we talked about how the cannabis industry uh, had evolved over the last five years. Um, and if we flash back to say 2017 before legalization, what was the mood like in the industry or the prospective industry? What, what did investors, retailers, folks who were wanting to get into it, what were they feeling? Uh, I think there was a lot of, I would call it exuberance mm -hmm. uh, in the market. You know, a lot of people who were hoping to make their fortune investing in cannabis companies 
Um, we spoke earlier about how there was this kind of blueprint for the recreational industry, which was these existing medical cannabis companies right. um, that were gearing up to become recreational. This is Canopy Growth, one of the biggest medicinal cannabis producers in the world. In a former Hershey's chocolate factory, they're growing thousands of kilos of marijuana, much of it to be ready when recreational use becomes legal. Um, you know, a bunch of those companies listed on public markets. They started gathering a lot of money from investors uh, and they started building out a lot of production capacity, these really huge production facilities to grow lots of weed. And one, there was this one popular uh, metric, this kind of jargon phrase that, that was always getting thrown around, and that was funded capacity, uh, which means, you know, we have enough money in our bank account to grow this much weed or right. to, to sell this much weed. And the concept, I guess, was that, you know, when legalization happened, then the, 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 the switch would just flip, right? And they would just all of a sudden be able to sell all that weed they were growing to all these people who would want to buy legal weed. Was the, I guess, the, the excitement, the exuberance you're talking about, basically, like, if we, if we grow it, they will come, so to speak. Like, was there any thinking on the limits of what they could sell? Or was it just like grow as much as you possibly can. Yeah. I mean, there, I think there definitely were estimates, uh, various estimates of what they could actually sell. Uh, as we saw over the course of, of, you know, the next few years, those estimates were pretty much always too high. Hmm. Uh, and part of, you know, there are various reasons for that. Uh, but a big part of that is that I think they overestimated, uh, the kind of stickiness of the illicit market for cannabis and, and, they maybe underestimated how hard it would be to get people to switch to the legal market. Okay. So let's talk about that. There were some really promising companies like the juggernaut of the weed industry, Canopy Growth. It had uh, massive cuts. It closed down production. Tilray Brands and Aurora Cannabis have both lost 99% of their value. And there's Fire and Flower, which is in creditor protection. So where did things turn? What happened to the green rush? Yeah. So, uh, you know, first of all, I just want to be clear. Uh, I don't want to paint the entire industry with a single brush, but if we're talking about the really big publicly traded producers here, first of all, when legalization launched, um, we did see this initial shortage of cannabis at the retail level. Part of that, you know, it wasn't that the cannabis didn't exist, but there were some early uh, kind of distribution hiccups to be sorted out. So it wasn't always getting to the stores when it needed to. And then Speaking of the stores themselves, um, retail stores were generally pretty scarce across Canada. Uh, and we have learned over time that uh, Canadians actually, if Canadians are going to buy legal cannabis, they're probably going to do it in a brick and mortar store. Even though there are online sales, people like to go to a store. Right. Um, you know, so that was the, at the beginning. Over time, we got to this point where, uh, you know, because they had built out all this production capacity, we, we very quickly discovered uh, there was actually too much product um, just sitting on shelves, not even at stores. It, it, this product, this product that never even got sent to stores. So, right. you know, what happens when there's too much of something? You have to lower the price to start selling it. And furthermore, cannabis is a plant. It doesn't sit around forever and stay good. Uh, and so over time, we've seen a lot of these big publicly traded companies destroy a lot of cannabis that they couldn't sell, closing down facilities, right. um, you know, laying people off. At this point, you know, five years later, it's not bad all across the sector. There are cannabis companies that are reporting profits in Canada, you know, maybe not every single quarter, but they're getting there. <laughs> and right now, those, those companies that are doing well, um, they're running really tight ships. I just want to go back for a second. As the industry is starting to take off, we have this 
we have we have two issues going on. Too much weed is grown initially, and there are too few retail stores. Now things have changed. I think one of the amazing things about the past few years is just watching, if you take a road trip for a few hours across Canada, you go through a whole bunch of towns and each of these towns has like multiple, multiple cannabis shops, right? It's, it's just that it's changed the landscape. I'm curious where things are at now. Like you've mentioned that we've maybe gone too far or where's, where are we at now in terms of the, the industry? On a national level, uh, at the end of the summer, I was tracking something in the neighborhood of 3,800 legal marijuana stores and or licenses in Canada. Uh, I have seen some slightly lower estimates. There was this really early race, especially in the most populated urban areas, um, to get to get those store those store locations when you could, which makes sense, right? If you're mm-hmm. opening a store, you want to do it where there's the most people. That's how we got to this situation where there were multiple stores on one street or in a single strip mall. Mm-hmm. And we're starting now, or not even starting, we have been seeing this rebalancing where, you know, not all of those stores can stay open, can compete with each other. The the thing I'm I'm really interested in right now is we're seeing the number of stores filling out in those kind of less exciting markets, right? Uh, less populated places like rural areas. Um, I was speaking to a guy recently who has an independent chain um, that only focuses on small rural towns in British Columbia, and you know he said like this isn't the world's most profitable weed store, but we're we're in business, you know we're making money, uh, and it's working for us. He, he was saying that you know we can, we found that even a town of just two thousand people can be enough for us to to run a store. Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. The whole rationalization, the whole rationale for uh, making cannabis legal is that they want, or part of the rationale for for making cannabis legal is that they wanted to tamp out the illicit market, right? But uh, data from Canada's Department of Public Safety shows people are still buying weed from their weed guy, right? They're buying black market weed. Uh, Why? Yeah. And not just the weed guy. I mean, certainly it could be, you know, someone local, but in a lot of cases, people are still buying cannabis from, uh, online mail order websites, um, which are illegal. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different explanations for this. My personal take is that people like what they're used to. People tend to be set in their ways unless there's a really good reason to change them. Mm -hmm. You know, unless the legal market comes in and offers you something that is more convenient, uh, products that are, are at least as good uh, or better and prices that are at least as good or better. You know, these days the legal market can sell pretty much the same product uh, assortment that the illicit market can. Um, one notable exception that we we touched on earlier was that 10 milligram THC limit in edibles. Right. Uh, that could certainly be something that keeps people, you know, especially heavy users, keeps them buying from from the illicit market, especially if they have a high tolerance. And you know, another thing is. For kids or for you know teenagers who want to get cannabis, 
they'll never going they're never going to be able to get it at the legal store as long as you know the store is doing their job and checking id so they'll, they'll always be buying it illegally or, or getting it some other way like you know sneaking it out of their parents stash right for sure Let's talk about looking forward then, like if, if the big goals of legislation were taking out illicit trade, maintaining public health or making sure public health is good, the industry wants to move forward with a, you know, a stronger foundation for their business. Can we hit all three of those things? Is that possible? I mean, I, I do think that the industry over time is going to get some of what they wish. You know, I think that the government will ease things, you know, kind of tinker around the edges of the regulation. You know, the the thing that always strikes me when I think about this is I, I see this kind of inherent tension uh, in the legalization law, right? So there's the, 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 there's the public health goal, which which is a good goal of keeping kids away from weed. And how do we do that? Well, in part, we do that by transitioning uh, cannabis users to buying from a legal, restricted, regulated system. Um, so you know, enforcement is one thing. You can re- reduce the illicit market for cannabis with enforcement to a certain degree. But really, if you if you really wanted to do away with the illicit market uh, as much as possible, you would have to flood the market with stores everywhere selling really cheap weed. Uh, and presumably, that would not be great from a public health perspective. And then, you know, vice versa, if you wanted to protect public health, you would restrict cannabis sales and cannabis products as much as you possibly could. But then the illicit market, as we already know, would would be more than happy to come in and sell those products anyway. I'm not saying that these goals are are completely mutually exclusive, um, but you can't go too far in one direction without, you know, risking the other goal here, right? When you're balancing public health against eliminating the illicit market. Okay, Solomon, it was great talking to you. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, I was really happy to be here. Thank you. That's all for today. I'm Damon Fairless. Thanks for listening to FrontBurner. Talk to you tomorrow. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.